Hi, my name is Savannah, and I am a community group leader with my husband here in Central Phoenix. Um, the passage today we're reading is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks of oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you um, for this Sunday, and we thank you, everyone that has gathered here um, to hear Pastor Rick um, preach. We pray, Lord, that you would just open people's hearts to hear the message that you have for them, and um, that you would just speak through Pastor Rick as he um, is here to give the message that you have, Lord. And we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for every single aspect of faithfulness you've provided for this church. And um, we just, we pray, Lord, today that you would just speak and um, whisper to people. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here and really glad that you're here. If you're new and I haven't met you on the way in, I'd love to meet you on the way out. We're really glad you're here. Uh, it's a good Sunday to be here as we approach Easter, as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus and prepare our hearts to do that. That's what we're going to do today. And, and we like to say around PBC a lot that love moves that love moves, that moves us in our devotion. And so if you don't know, that's why we've gathered here today is because as we love Jesus, we want to gather together to look at his word and to worship him in song. And so it moves us to devotion. It also moves us to declaration. And Easter in about a week, Good Friday and Easter, is a huge opportunity to declare Jesus Christ. Anybody will go to church on Easter. Uh, they want to wear the hat Right? They want to dress up their kids really nice. They want to get a family photo. And it's a great opportunity for you, if you've been thinking about a family friend, a coworker, a neighbor to invite, this is a really good time to invite them. And I know some of you are thinking, but they don't even know I'm a Christian. Um, or it could be awkward. Listen, this is a great time to break your cover. Okay? If, if nobody around you knows that you're a Christian, this is a time to, to break your cover where you can say, hey, I am a Christian. I do follow Jesus. I'm going to church on Sunday. You should come with me. We have some friends in our church who adopted a baby at the end of December, 
and they've maintained a relationship with their birth mom. And they were just telling me the other day, they're really excited because they're inviting the birth mom to come to Good Friday and Easter with them. How amazing if that, would that be if she comes and gets to hear about Jesus and they get to show how God has adopted them through Jesus Christ just like they were able to adopt her child. And so there's amazing opportunities for that. We're thinking about who we're going to invite. I want you to be thinking and praying about who you can invite. Just think of one. Just think of one person that you can break your cover for, invite to church on Easter, and see what Jesus might do with that. Don't miss that opportunity. Let's not miss that as a church. And then today, we get the special opportunity to hear from a really good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Pastor Rick Eford. He is the pastor, or a pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church, has been for almost 30 years in the valley. And uh, some of you know our story. We started as a new church about a year and a half ago. And I, I, I've said to Rick, and I've said to others, I don't know if our church would be here if it wasn't for Rick Eford. Um, guys like him came around us in a really tough time and just said things like, we're praying for you guys. What can we help with? Uh, they covered my insurance our first few months as a church. If you've been around, uh, you know Rick. You've seen him here, up here preaching God's word. You've seen him do leadership trainings with us. You've heard that story. And so Rick and Desert Springs Bible have just been an incredible blessing to us. And so as we think about the year and sermon series, I think through every once in a while, who do I want you guys to hear from? Normally, I'm up here preaching, but when I take a, a strategic break, who do I want to expose you guys to? And I want to, to do that with people intentionally, purposefully, of people who have invested into me and that I've learned from. And Rick is one of those guys. And so really thankful for him and thankful for our partnership with Desert Springs and glad for you guys to hear from him this morning. Would you guys welcome Rick up to the stage with me? Thank you, Tim. What an introduction. What, you know, if I worked at Chick-fil-A, I would say at this point, it's my pleasure. <laughs> I don't know if you ever noticed, they have trained their staff so well. If you say thank you to anybody at, at Chick-fil-A, now you can't do it on Sunday because they're not there, right? But if you say thank you to anybody at Chick-fil-A, what's their response? It's my pleasure. What a great statement. It truly is my pleasure to be here today. I have, when Tim asked me some time ago, probably a month and a half, two months ago, if I'd come and preach today here at, at Phoenix Bible Church, I said, wow, I'd love to. And so I went to my new boss who used to work for me for nine years, Caleb Campbell. But we changed roles in September, and I, uh, I'm now an associate pastor there. So I said, Caleb, is it okay if I go and preach at Phoenix Bible Church? And he said, yeah, do it. And so anyway, that's what brings us here today. And we're so thankful, Emily and I both are, uh, to be a part of your worship and your fellowship today. Uh, Pray for me as we go through this morning and pray for yourself that God would open your heart and your eyes to what he wants to say to you through the preaching and teaching of his word. And I think there's some things that he does. There's certainly a way that he's used it in my life, even in preparing for today. You know, as I was doing this, I was thinking about uh, back a number of years ago, Emily and I moved into a new community. And so we're meeting a lot of new neighbors. 
And one guy was out, he's walking his lab, and that's, for those of you who don't know, that's a dog. Okay, so he's a Labrador retriever, and so we had had labs for a long time, and so I decided, well, hey, let's, I'll just meet him. And so I introduced myself, and we're talking, and talking about his dog, and then talking about golf, which he loved to do, and then talking about fly fishing, and then talking about bird hunting, and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. We just had a great time in the street talking to each other. And then not long after that, just a few days, it was one of those God appointments where at the same driving range, I'm hitting balls, he's hitting balls right at the place right next to me. And so we continue that conversation. And then he asked me that fateful question, Rick, what do you do for a living? Now, those of you that don't understand this whole pastoral type, I, I love being a pastor, but I sort of fly under the radar because I don't want people thinking they have to adopt a different persona when they're around a, a clergy type. And sure, it was this way with him. When I told him I was a pastor, he went, really? Uh, well, that's, that's good. Uh, I guess our souls could use saving around here. And I said, dude, no, 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 no. I'm not here to treat anybody like that. I got enough issues of my own. And, you know, let's just get to know each other. And, and, uh, and then we went back to hitting balls. And so he was hitting them better than I was. And we got to a point, he says, you mind if I ask you a personal question? Now, that's, that's a, the sky's the limit on that one, right? And I said, sure, what is it? He said, how'd you get into doing the Sunday thing? That was his word for church. And I said, really? I've never had anybody put it quite like that. And so it took me back, and he says, no, no, don't, don't take this wrong, but you know what? You seem like a pretty normal guy. You like to hunt, you like to fish, you like to play golf. And, you know, I mean, you just seem like a normal guy. And I just, I just loved it. But I was also laughing inside. And it caused me to wonder, what prompted that? Well, sometime later, talking to his wife, I was explaining that to her. And, and she had said this. She said, we know the only exposure he's ever had to anybody that's in the ministry or a pastor is she's coming from a Russian background. He's familiar with Russian Orthodox, with the long beards and the long flowing robes and the big crosses and chains and all that stuff. And the other thing he's exposed to is, is Mormons because of people in his family and people knocking on his door and coming in a white shirt and black tie. And I didn't fit either one of those paradigms, so he, didn't, he, he couldn't wrap, wrap his brain around this. But it led me to wonder, I wonder what people think about not just pastors, what's their preconceived notions about pastors, but about Christians. If someone knows you're a Christian, what does a Christian look like? Well, obviously, it can't be gender because there's men and women. It can't be age because there's people of all different ages that are Christians. It can't be ethnicity. It can't be the way we dress. It can't be anything that's external like that, right? So what's a Christian? You say, well, that's easy. It's a person that looks like Jesus. Well, that's a good answer, but it's not as easy as you might think. What does Jesus look like? You say, well, it's simple. You know, you just do what Jesus would do. How many of you have ever seen the bracelet WWJD or something like that? What does the WWJD stand for? What would, say it together with you, what would Jesus do? And that's a great thought. It's wonderful. It, it's an excellent way to go about life, except for one thing, it's incomplete. And in many cases, it's ineffective at really changing life. What would Jesus do is the right Thing, but only if we do what Jesus would do for the reasons that Jesus did them. You know, there's a lot of religious people that look more like Jesus if you just look at externals than, than a lot of the, um, the Christians that I know. 
There's a lot of people like that. Matter of fact, this couple that I was just talking to you, they are more upright, have greater integrity than most believers that I've ever run across, and yet they have told us, we just don't believe the same that you did, that you do. And so we're still praying they'll come to faith in Jesus, but their lifestyle many times looks more like a Christian than most Christians I know. Now, here's another way that someone has put it, and you sort of cross through the WWJD, and it's this. Long letters, it stands for, how do you know what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did? (laughs) Now, think about that one for a while. How do you know what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did? And so that's a real key thing. Uh, George Barna, who is a respected pollster, has written a book a number of years ago, Think Like Jesus, Make the Right Decision Every Time. And that's a key part of this whole passage and whole focus. This morning we're going to look at, basically one of the things that he is saying is this, only 14% of born-again adults, in other words, only about one out of seven, rely on the Bible as their moral compass and believe that moral truth is absolute. That's a problem, isn't it? And the consequence to that, according to Barna, is this. If we're not going to make our moral choices that way, the consequence that millions, and the data suggests even more, born-again Christians, that's a person who's placed their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, which is a good thing. They're saved by God's grace, but it hadn't affected their lifestyle to the degree that it should. The consequence that millions of born-again Christians have not surrendered their life fully. Thus, they keep one foot firmly planted in this world and one foot gingerly lodged in the next. That causes many people who call Jesus their Savior to live in ways that are not distinguishable from the ways of people who do not name Jesus as their Savior. It seems that Christians are more affected by society than society is affected by Christians. Why is that? Perhaps more than 9 out of 10, every born-again Christians fail to think like Jesus. They think like the rest of the world, so they naturally behave like citizens of this world. They are not the salt, not the light that Jesus commands us to be because they lack the personal commitment and lack of faith or depth of faith that makes them truly changed, God-driven beings. That's a pretty scathing indictment, isn't it? And yet, what is the number one accusation that's leveled against us as followers of Jesus? What would you say the number one is? Isn't it hypocrisy? And that's an easy target. It's a target-rich environment. But we don't live up to what we say we believe. And many times, it's because we don't really even know fully what we believe. That's why teaching of the Word of God, like you have on Sundays here like you have in your community groups, as, as Tim faithfully brings and other people fill this pulpit, we must know what the Word of God says. We must know what Jesus did. We must know what Jesus commanded if we ever have any prayer, any hope of being like Jesus, of having people see Jesus in us. Only then will we know what Jesus would do so we know what we should do. We need to think like Jesus. You know, that may seem pretty hopeless when you look at the statistics that we're just talking about and you look at the experience, and, and yet there is hope. Matter of fact, take it from Peter. Peter is a man who wrote the book that we're going to look at today. He's the one that wrote the book that you've been studying for the last number of weeks and months about a living hope throughout the whole book. 
Peter is one who even denied his Lord. Peter is one who swore with probably the saltiest language that only a fisherman could muster up to disassociate himself with Christ when he was put at the test. That's before the resurrection. That's before the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter is one who knows what it is to have hope in the risen Christ. And this morning as we look at the words that he wrote, we want to understand just that. So that we can think like Jesus, so that we can live like him. You see, to live like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus. That's what we see in the first seven verses of this passage. We're going to look totally at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 in the ongoing series on living hope. But we're going to focus this morning on those first 11 verses. And it starts out like this in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Since Christ suffered in the flesh. This is really looking back to verse 18 in the passage that Tim taught last week. About how Christ has suffered once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. How Jesus Christ when he went to that cross nailed our sins to the cross. He paid our penalty. Not his. He was sinless. He died in your place. He died in my place. And since Christ has suffered once for all in the flesh on the cross, then there's a response that we should have. Notice the word therefore in this. Always look back, just like I did to verse 18, because what's being said here is built on the essence of what was said before. Since, since this has happened, Christ suffering in the flesh, then here's your response. Here's my response. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourselves. It's a mindset of going, get ready for battle. Get ready to war. Put on your armor. Put on your armament. Arm yourselves for the fight that's ahead. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I, if we want to follow Jesus Christ, if we want for people to look at us and see Jesus in us, then we better be ready for a spiritual battle, for a war. We need to arm ourselves with defensive armament that likes it talks about in Ephesians 6, and with the, the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. We need to arm ourselves. But here's the big thing that he's saying to arm ourselves with. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Above and beyond everything else, you and I need to arm ourselves with thinking the way that Jesus thought. Think the way that Jesus thought to live the way that Jesus lived is what we see in these first eight verses. We go on and look and, and see the, the effect of Christianity. Again, you know, Barna in his book talks about some of the extensive research on this. He says this, survey after survey has shown that Americans, including a huge majority of born-again Christians and evangelical Christians, lack a biblical worldview. We're shaped more by society. He says a biblical worldview is thinking like Jesus. It's a way of making our faith practical in every situation that we face each day. A biblical worldview is a way of dealing with the world in such a way that we act like Jesus 24 hours a day, not just on Sundays, not just on Sunday mornings. We act like Jesus 24 hours a day because we think like Jesus. A biblical worldview is a means of experiencing, interpreting, and responding to reality in the light of biblical principle. Think like Jesus in order to live like Jesus. 
So what does this look like? In verses 2 through 7, we see some of the specifics that are here. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That doesn't mean we ever reach a period of time where we hit this plateau and we never, ever sin again. I met some people that think like that until I really start to push them and challenge them and then they start getting angry. Uh, I think at last glance, probably their anger was not a righteous anger. And when they would become critical and sarcastic and judgmental, I think that that's probably some of the same sin of the Pharisees, even though they were thinking they were sinless. None of us ever reached the point where we are living a sinless life. But you know what? There should be a pattern where when we sin, we don't stay in that sin. We come back, we acknowledge that sin, we confess that sin, we keep short accounts with God and with one another. Basically, we are ceasing to live in sin. It's not our lifestyle anymore. That's the issue that's here. There are events, there are occasions, but it's not a lifestyle. You see, the scriptures, when it speaks of you and me as a follower of Jesus, doesn't even say we are sinners saved by grace, though we are. Do you know the term that the scriptures speak of us as Christians and as followers of Jesus? Saints. To the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome, to the saints that are scattered around the Mediterranean. This is a circular letter written to saints, written to Christians. Saints are holy ones. That's our new identity in Christ. You and I, if we are in Christ, are clothed in the righteousness of him. And so the old way of life should be passing away. We should be putting that to death. And we should be living in the spirit because that's our new nature as a child, as a son or daughter of the most high God. He goes on to say, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Think like Jesus, to live like Jesus. For the time has passed, suffices for doing what the Gentiles or the non-believers, the non-Christians want to do. And here are some of the things. It's a representative list. Living in sensuality, that could do with anything about the, the, this life and the senses, but especially sexuality. Passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and, and lawless idolatry. And anything that we put ahead of God is an idol. Anything we honor above him as an idol, anything we sacrifice what he would have us do for, whether that's a person or whether that's a thing, is a form of idolatry. I don't need to explain what all those words mean to you. You get the picture, right? This is a way, this is a picture of how people in this world system live. And he's saying you and I should be different as followers of Jesus. We should live differently. When I look, I look at a lot of this, and, and there's a time in my life when I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm thinking, man, that sounds like that's a party. That's good. That's where I want to be. And then when I came to a place of really committing my life to Christ, I was reading the book of James. And James says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. I'm thinking, that's what I thought. Christianity's pretty masochistic. But what he was saying is this. What used to make you laugh now should make you cry. What used to you think gave you life, now you should look at it and say, no, that's death. I've had that conversation with one of my own sons who's not walking with the Lord. And he wants me to embrace an aspect of his lifestyle. And I said, I can't do it. 
Because I know this is what you believe brings you life, will bring you satisfaction, will bring you meaning and purpose. And the way I see it, the way the Word of God says is it may for a season seem to do that, but it will in the end be your death. It will destroy you. And I cannot embrace that because I love you. That's the picture of what's here. Not that God is some cosmic killjoy that wants you to just take all the fun and all the joy out of life and to squeeze it out of us, but he's a heavenly father that loves us and who gives us directions because he doesn't want us to see us do things any more than a father or mother of a small child would want to see their son or daughter stick a, a, a bobby pin or a, something into a light socket. It may look like so much fun, but it's not. It's destructive. Saying, look, these are the things that the world system does. These are the things that non-believers do, and they want you to do it with them. He goes on to say, with this respect, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Unbridled passion. And they malign you. There's a young woman that Emily had quite a bit of influence in, and she was coming and never had a church background. She would come and her friends began to make fun of her for coming to church on Sundays and for doing other things, going to a Bible study. And, and they would say things like this to her, hey, say hi to Jesus for us with such derision and sarcasm. To my knowledge, I don't think she's walking that way anymore. I think she's probably listened to the voices of her friends in that powerful pull to draw her back. They'll malign you, but they, the ones that malign you, will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, all of us were given account, and death is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It doesn't end at death because you and I continue to live even after these physical bodies die. And there is one, his name is Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead on a certain day in the future. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Even non-believers' knees will bow to Jesus because he truly is the Lord of the King. And it will become evident at that time. But for those who don't yet know him, it's too late. He will judge the living and the dead. It says in verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And Tim spoke about this last week and did a great job explaining some of the more cryptic and difficult passages. I think the simplest way to understand this, and usually when you're seeking to understand Scripture, the simplest explanation is the better one or the best one. I think it's saying this, for this is now why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead that the gospel has been preached in one form or another, even when Noah was building the ark. He's a preacher of righteousness, the scriptures say. The whole time he's building this ark and people are wondering, what are you doing building this ark in the desert? I think he was preaching righteousness. Maybe not Jesus Christ. Maybe not there is coming a time when Jesus is going to be born and Jesus is going to die and he's going to be in a cross and not the gospel the way we... But he was preaching about the relationship with God and the need for repentance of their sin. That they might live in the Spirit the way that God lives in the Spirit. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be clear-headed, don't be, have a buzz on for the sake of your prayers. 
You understand that a lot of times in our lives, um, the scriptures say that we shouldn't harbor iniquity in our hearts so that our prayers will not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7, it says that to us who are husbands, who have a wife, it says, deal with your wife in an understanding manner and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the gift of life. And the next phrase, guys, is this, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The way you treat your wife, gentlemen, is a big deal in God's economy. The respect or lack thereof that you show her the love that you demonstrate, the provision for her, the protection that you give to her is a big deal. And if you choose not to do that, that's sin. And that sin will hinder your prayers. No matter how much scripture you may throw at her, don't use that as a club to beat her into submission, so to speak. That's sin. And your prayers will be hindered. The psalmist says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, then you will not hear my prayers. There will be an inhibition or inhibitor to our prayers if we harbor known sin in our lives. He's saying, look, we need to live like Jesus. But in order to live like Jesus, we need to do what? Think like Jesus. And that's how he did that. Let me give an example of this. There is a young lady that I met some years ago. Her name is Vanita. Vanita came to me, and the first time I really met her, she wanted to join our church. She wanted to be a part of the church. And as we sat down and talked, it's just the two of us, it became clear that she was living with her boyfriend. She's a young single mom, and it made economic sense, and I, I empathized with all of that. And There was a lot of insecurity, but she was still living with her boyfriend. And I said, you know, Vanita, and I was praying about this because I, I really didn't want to come off insensitive at all. But I said, let's, let's put the membership thing on a back burner and let's just talk about your relationship with Christ first. And that led to, you know, the situation that you and, and your boyfriend are is not consistent with the scriptures. You're living as if you're married and you're not married. And you're sharing a bed and I get all of that, the need for intimacy, but that's not what the scriptures would tell you to do. And so we need to address that issue. We love having you here. We're so glad that you're here. We want to help you to continue to grow. But how do you think she responded to that, at least initially? Oh, Rick, thank you for telling me the truth. What do you think? You think that was a response? No. She really wanted to tell me where to go. As a matter of fact, she did tell me where to go. And it wasn't how to get to church, and it wasn't how to get to heaven. You follow my drift. She was angry, and she was hurt. So I was surprised when she came to church the next Sunday and we celebrated communion like we're going to do in just a few minutes. When she did, she sat through that and we shared the gospel. And after that, she came up to me with tears streaming down her face in the lobby. And she threw her arms around me. She said, oh, Rick, before I thought I was a Christian, but now I know I am. And she embraced the good news of Jesus. By the way, come back on Good Friday for the Good Friday service. You guys are doing that. Churches all over the world are doing that. I mean, we tend to, evangelical Christianity tend to jump right from Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord today, to Easter Sunday. He is risen, he's risen indeed, and we forget the passion of what it cost Christ. That's foundational to everything else. As Christ has suffered in the flesh once for all, that's foundational to everything else. Let's never, ever forget that. Come and respond. Vanita began a journey of 
knowing how much God loved her in Christ and how that trumped the love of any other individual. And it began a process in her life that I'll tell you about in a few minutes. Not only do we need to think like Jesus in order to live like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus in order to love like Jesus. And that's in the next two verses, verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality toward one another without grumbling. Love each other earnestly. That term in the Greek language really talks about it's a muscle that's stretched, a muscle that's strained, a muscle that's under pressure, like a runner, like an athlete that's running. And you can see the muscles. You can see the fibers in this picture before you. You can see the quads and the stretch in those quads. You can see the calves as these runners are straining in this run, in this race. That's what he says the way we should be living or loving. You know, there is uh, just yesterday or the day before, uh, Emily and I, just Emily's project, she's in real estate. She just finished a remodel project. We had some leftover tile. We had a lot of leftover tile that we're going to use in another remodel. Well, I needed to move it into a storage unit. And then that storage unit, I couldn't park in the normal place, which was level. I had to go up an incline. And so I'm loading all of this tile in one by one. These pallets of tile were not all that heavy until I get them on the cart. And now I start pushing them. And I am by myself trying to push them up this incline to get to the storage unit. And I got about halfway up and I thought, I'm not going to make this. And I'm having a strain with everything within me. And here's another thing. I'm starting to feel the tension in my Achilles tendons. And on Palm Sunday about 20 years ago, I ruptured one of my Achilles tendons in basketball. And I'm thinking, oh no, it's the day before Palm Sunday. Is this going to happen again? It's just deja vu all over again. And it was just like, oh, everything within me. We'll do that with things like this, but have we gone to that degree with loving one another? Have we sacrificed financially in loving each other to where it hurts? Have we sacrificed in the time that it takes to come into someone else's life, to come along to someone else's side and to help them to the point that it hurts, that it strains, but that's not comfortable, that's not easy. No, it's not. But how did Jesus live and how did Jesus love? Jesus went to that cross and I can guarantee you he strained, he agonized out of love more than any of us ever will. If we want to love like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus who saw you, who saw me, who saw those people as worth it, whether they responded to him or not. Let's think like Jesus to love like Jesus. Above all, as a first priority, when Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment, what did he say? There's 631 commandments or 613 commandments in the scriptures. What's the greatest one? They were saying that trip him up. He said the greatest one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And it's the second one that's likened to that. And that is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. By the way, James puts it this way. Here's the royal law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do we demonstrate our love for God? We demonstrate it through loving those who are created in God's image. You cannot separate those two. 
above all, everything else, prioritize on working hard to love one another. Showing hospitality is one of the things he says to one another and doing it without grumbling. How many times have we said, well, we'll decide to have somebody over to the house or we'll open our home or somebody will drop by and, and afterwards going, <laughs> every year, Emily and I have probably 40 people over for Thanksgiving, people like us that don't have any family in town. And every year in Thanksgiving, it's something we love to do. But every year, about a week out, three days out, two days out, when we're not ready, and we got all these people coming over, why are we doing this? Oh, my gracious, why are we doing this? We could be doing this. We could be doing that. It would be so much easier. Can we not do it this year? And yet every year after we do it, we think, oh, this was good. This was so good. Because people who are there just invite other people. And we never know who fully is going to show up. We've watched God do some amazing things over the years through that. It's a pain. But it's a joy. Love earnestly and show hospitality to one another. Open your home. Open your heart to the people in your neighborhood. To the people that you come across. Above all, love each other earnestly. Benita came to faith in Jesus, and she had a big decision to make. And that decision was, because of Jesus' love for her, she said, I need to live more like Jesus, and I need to obey what the Scriptures say. And so she made the decision to move out. That was a hard call. I first met with her boyfriend, and he did tell me to go to hell. And uh, i never seen him since. Because you can imagine what that was like for him. That was a game changer. He didn't want his girlfriend, his partner, to become one of those, even though he was the one who first invited her to come to our church since he had come through our youth program. But she made that decision. It was a gutsy call. And again, with tears streaming down her face, she moved out. But I want to tell you, there are a group of people, God bless them, there are a group of people in a community, church, community group in our church that came alongside of her. And as a church, we paid for her rent for a month or two to help her make that bridge. That community group came and people paid and people came and people helped her move. And they came alongside of her to address the real need of her heart that she wasn't alone. She was a part of a family. And because of their love, she had the confidence to do what was right. She was seeking now to live like Jesus, but she was also seeking, as they sought, to love like Jesus. She was growing in that for herself. Then there's a third part to this, and that is this. We need to think like Jesus to serve like Jesus. In verses 10 through 11, we read this. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards, as good managers of God's multifaceted grace. Each one of us has received a gift. You think, not me, I haven't. Yes, you have. Don't call God a liar. Every one of us has received a gift. And, and the result or the, the reason that God's given that is so that we can use it to serve one another. Whatever that gift may be. Use it to serve one another. It's a part of God's multifaceted grace. I remember when, when Emily and I were talking about getting married, 
And we had gone down to Atlanta to look at some rings and to look at stones and to look at other stuff. And, and I remember the day that they mailed that, that ring to me. And one of her best friends, Emily didn't know that I'd received it, but one of her best friends and I went out to, to the car and we opened up that box and when the sun came through that diamond, it, it wasn't that big of a diamond, but when it came through that diamond, it still lit up the car. There were lights and brilliance all over the inside of that car. That's that multifaceted, the multidimensioned grace of God who gives gifts to men and women. He loves us so much that he has gifted us, but he doesn't want us to use it on ourselves. He wants us to use it to serve other people. That's why the gift is there. You say, well, I don't even know what my gift is. I love Peter. I love the fact he's a fisherman and not a scholar because he takes those long lists of gifts that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, and which I don't even know were exhaustive, but probably representative. And he boils it down to two things. As each of you has received a gift put it to use. Those who are gifted in speaking, speak as it were the very oracles of God. And those who are gifted in serving, serve with the very strength that God provides. Both are important. The speaking gifts oftentimes get the, the greater play to stand up and preach or to read scripture or to, to lead like Samson did in music before you or like Tim or anybody else that stands in this pulpit, you think that's the gifted person, that's the speaking, that's the talent. You know what? We would be in so much trouble if we didn't have other people that worked along the signs and behind the scenes. I think in terms of Tara, who's doing the slides even as we go through this today from the back. I think in terms of Shane, who's helping the sound, because if he wasn't helping with the sound, then we're in trouble. I think of Chris working to put these slides together just from thoughts and things that I sent to him. And I've watched people out there greeting as you came in with name tags and, and just greeting one another or serving coffee. So many of those types of things are what needs to happen for the body of Christ to work together. Those who speak, speak as it were with confidence. If you're speaking to an individual, speak the words that God has to you to speak to them. And if you're serving, do so with the strength that God provides. You know, a part of that speaking is not limited to crowds. It could be to one person. It could be to a small group. It could be in the Bible study in a community group. It could be in one-on-one -on -one mentoring. It's still speaking the words of God. Speak those words and speak them confidently. And serve with the strength that God provides. Vanita came to know Jesus. Vanita experienced the love of Jesus through other people. And God used that to help Vanita move on to serve other people. She left the medical profession that she was in after a number of years. And she said, I really believe that God wants me to work with young women, with teenagers. And so she began to work in an organization called Young Lives with single moms. Who better to work with single moms than someone who has walked in their shoes? And you know what God did in the process? He's seen young women come to faith in Jesus. We've seen young women baptized because of Vanita's influence in their life, because of her serving. She took a big pay cut to do this, and yet she served. And people are coming to Jesus. And you know what? God also gave her a man in her life, a guy who knows Jesus. And she came to me, and she said, Jeff, I really think Jeff's the right guy but I'm not going to say yes to him until he comes to you, Rick, and ask for my hand in marriage. Boy, I can't tell you what they did to me. 
And it all started with speaking the truth in love. If we want to serve like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus to serve like him. And the end result of all of that is found in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. As we seek to live like Jesus, as we seek to love like Jesus, as we seek to serve like Jesus, which starts as we think like Jesus, it gives glory to our Father who's in heaven. People will see him in us and will be drawn to him. I close with this. A number of years ago, I came across a, a group. The group's name is Harvest. It's not Harvest India like you guys are familiar with, but it's a group that works with churches and believers around the world doing development but representing Jesus. And we were introduced to a, a village in southern Mexico called Tepozinalco. And the story of Tepozinalco is amazing because here is a German missionary that straps on a, a backpack and goes to the mountains to find a group of people who were drug growers. That was their profession. They, drew, they, they grew drugs. And, and basically, a, a Mexican helicopter had come in. They would have two or three ships. I saw this when we went down in reconnaissance. They basically would come in. They had uh, gunships, gun helicopters before and after, and they had two in the middle and they had spraying equipment and they would come in and spray these, these fields of, of drugs that they could find. Well, these people had shot down one of those helicopters and they had disbanded into the, into the woods because of, into the mountains because they didn't want to face the federales. Well, Gottfried, this German missionary, goes into the mountains to find them and really they found him and they didn't kill him. He just said, I come to be and to talk with you and to try to help any way that I can. I'm not going to turn you in. And one by one, those men came to know Jesus. They did something uncommon. They actually turned themselves in sometime later saying that we know we, need to, we have done wrong and we need to, to face our, our crime. And, and they didn't know what to do with them, so they released them early to go back and to watch in the village to make sure they didn't continue to grow, drug, grow drugs. As the work of Christ, the grace of Christ began to work through that village, a transformation began to happen that was remarkable. But I want to tell you how it happened. Instead of growing drugs, they now grew tomatoes, and they also began to cut lumber, and they began to transport that lumber. And one of the things they began to do is to say, we need to build better houses for ourselves. But the leaders, the Christian leaders in that village said before, we're going to build a house for ourselves. We're going to build a house for every widow that's in our neighborhood, in our community, in our village. Whether they're Christians or not, we're going to build a home for them. We're going to make sure the widows are cared for first. What effect do you think that had? Almost 98% of that village came to know Jesus as a result of seeing God's work in action. And God's name was glorified. I wonder... How will God do that in central Phoenix, in this part of the world? How will God use this church overseas and in other places through men and women who say, we want to start thinking like Jesus so that we can live increasingly like Jesus, so that we can love like Jesus, and so that we can serve like Jesus? Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for your power to take your word through your spirit and increasingly shape us into the people that you want us to be. 
Father, help us to be increasingly the people that you've destined us to be and help us to do the work that you've designed for us to do. And we pray that you would bless the work of our hands. Father, I pray that for this church and for its leadership, that you would use them to be a bright and shining light for Jesus, that many people will come to know him this Easter, next Sunday, and beyond. That people will be baptized next Sunday as their identification with Jesus. And Father, I pray that you're going to work in a dynamic way. I thank you most of all, Father, for the privilege, though, of being your son, of being your daughter. And I pray even as we celebrate the Lord's table here in a few moments that you would help us to understand how much you love us. Then in responding, we're simply saying back to you, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.